And God, help us to pay attention as we open your word together this morning. Help us to be attentive uh, to your way, to your heart, to your will, to the things that you would have us know and learn and become. Make us uh, malleable in your good hands. You are a potter. uh, We are clay. We ask these things in Christ the Lord. Amen. At a memorial service uh, two Saturdays ago, I was asked to speak from three passages of scripture, one of which was uh, from the prologue to the Gospel of John. And uh, during the days uh, leading up to that memorial service, I spent some extra time in those verses. And as I did, I was reminded of the centrality of grace, first and foremost, in the person of Jesus Christ. I was reminded of the unavoidable centrality of grace in the person, the character, the life, the work, the ministry, the being of Jesus. Grace may be the most unique characteristic and trait of Jesus. During a British conference on comparative religions now many, many years ago, experts from around the world in religion debated what, if any, belief was wholly unique to the Christian faith, what doctrine might be wholly unique in Christianity. They began with eliminating possibilities. Incarnation, well, there are some other obscure religions in the world that have different visions and versions of God appearing in human form. How about resurrection? Again, there were and are some uh, obscure religious movements and beliefs around the world that had that as well, a person returning from death. The debate went on and on until C.S. Lewis walks into the room. Uh, What's all the rumpus about, he was reported to have asked. And heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing what might be Christianity's unique contribution among religions, to which Lewis responded, that's easy. It's grace. But what exactly is grace? I confess that I grew up in the church without a decent understanding of grace. All along, childhood, baptism, confirmation class, youth ministry, and beyond. Without a decent understanding of grace. It's one of those words like kingdom that is used regularly in church but which I fear wasn't clearly understood by me or many others with me in the church. And this may still be true for many of us today. When we hear the word grace, we may think of the prayer that is said before a meal, saying grace, or the gifts of a dancer, she moves with such grace, or the time after which something is due but before we are penalized for turning it in, a grace period. A woman's name, like will and grace, or the way that someone, a royalty, a duchess, might be addressed in the UK, your grace or her grace. And the list could go on and on and on. Somewhere along the way in middle school or early high school, I was taught an acronym that was supposedly the definition of grace. And it looks like this. God's riches at Christ's expense. And as a mnemonic, it worked. I remembered it. I still remember it. Grace means God's riches for me 
at Jesus' expense. Jesus paid the price. I get the benefit. Jesus died. I live. But the acronym had and has a weakness as well because it connotes or it can connote that all of God's grace is contained in Christ's atoning death on the cross. Moreover, it can be understood as merely a transaction and even a cold, impersonal transaction, exchange. Jesus died, I live. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. But there is more to grace, more to God's grace than merely the atoning work of Jesus on a cross. Though that is certainly the pinnacle and the centerpiece of God's grace. There is more to God's grace than the atoning work of Jesus on the cross, though that is certainly the pinnacle, the centerpiece of such. And God's grace is more than merely a business transaction or exchange or deal. We see this throughout the scriptures when we pay attention closely, which is where we now turn. Reading from the first chapter of John's gospel, verses 14 through 18, pay attention closely. This is the word of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And you know that John here is referring to Jesus, though he doesn't name Jesus yet, when he uses the word word in Greek, lagos, which was to the Greeks uh, this concept or idea of the glue that held the universe together, the cosmic being or eternal reality that was everywhere and in everything and yet still mystery. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John the Baptist bore witness about him and cried out, this was whom This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known, however. And what seems to dominate John's introduction of Jesus and John's description of Jesus here is grace. John had already told us at the beginning of chapter one that Jesus was with God, Jesus was God, that Jesus was life, that Jesus was light, that all things had been made through him and for him, by him. And now John reminds his readers that he, what he and others have seen the full and complete glory of God in and through Jesus. And it can only be satisfactorily described with one word, grace. In the Old Testament, the idea of grace shows up most often through two Hebrew words, hen, which means, uh, which is the key to phrases like favor in God's sight, having favor in God's sight. And hesed, which is most often translated in English, and you will see it in the Old Testament as Loving kindness, God's loving kindness. And the New Testament is the Greek word charis that is translated into English as grace. Its root is connected to Greek words that mean joy and rejoice. And its most literal meanings are favor 
and kindness. Grace has more formally been defined because people are always trying to get their arms, their hands, their minds around it in these ways. The unmerited divine assistance given to humans for their regeneration and sanctification. The freely given unmerited favor and love of God. The influence or spirit of God operating in humans to regenerate or strengthen them. Dallas Willard says to help us do what we can't do on our own. Grace has probably most succinctly been defined in English as unmerited favor. Say that to the person next to you. Unmerited favor. God's unmerited favor. It is not earned. It is not achieved. It is never deserved. But nevertheless given and given freely with no strings attached. That is grace. And that alone is grace. Interestingly though, Jesus never uses the word grace. The word grace shows up four times in all four of the Gospels total. All right here in the verses that we've read in John's introduction to Jesus and who Jesus is and what his life and ministry are about. And yet Jesus' life and ministry were defined by grace In the words of Philip Yancey, aware of our inbuilt resistance to grace, Jesus talked about it often. He described a world suffused with God's grace where the sun shines on people who are good and bad, where birds gather seeds gratis, neither plowing nor harvesting to earn them, where untended wildflowers burst into bloom on the rocky hillsides. Like a visitor from a foreign country who notices what the natives overlook, Jesus saw grace everywhere. And Jesus not only observed and saw and talked about grace, he also exuded it. Jesus blessed outcasts and paid attention to nobodies. He noticed the blind. He touched the lepers. He welcomed immigrants. He cared for people who were out of their minds. Full of demons, they said then. Mentally deranged we might say now he ate in the homes of sinners he had mercy on a woman whose relationship history was questionable at best he included pariahs he declared blessed are the poor and those who have no standing in your society He affirmed the God-given value of repeat offenders and people who had long since had their dignity stripped from them because of their failures. Seeing in every one of them the imago Dei, the image of God, imputed by God, giving them value. Jesus welcomed children. Grace upon grace. It's an unusual phrase. Its grammatical construction in Greek is peculiar. Scholars are not sure exactly what it means. A first grace and a second grace, a basic grace and a higher grace. 
The Apostle Paul, who was born into a well-pedigreed family and who climbed the religious ladder and had kept every letter of the law and who had earned his upright standing with God, came to understand God's grace during and after an encounter with the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, before which he saw early in his life. And then later, Paul had been breathing out, quote, murderous threats in his mission to squash Jesus' people and his aim to put asunder this movement of grace. And so radically transformed was Paul by his own encounter with grace in Jesus that he began every one of his letters with greetings like these, grace to you, grace be with you, grace and peace to you brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace upon grace. When the morally and spiritually bankrupt and completely lost and desperate slave trader John Newton, similar to the Apostle Paul, Paul's experience of God's loving favor uh, came upon them, came upon him. He knew what he did not deserve. He knew what he merited and what he did not merit. He knew what was rightfully his justice, God's wrath, punishment, and death. And so when God rescued him, when God saved him, when God had mercy on him, he wrote the hymn we know as Amazing Grace. It is true that the glory of God's grace shines most brightly against a backdrop of darkness. And there is darkness in all of us. Grace upon grace. In the words of A.W. Tozer that are printed on the cover of our bulletins this morning, grace is the good pleasure of God, not the reluctant decision, but the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. It is a self-existent principle inherent in the divine nature, and it appears to us as a self-caused propensity to pity the wretched, to spare the guilty, to welcome the outcast, and to bring into favor those who were before under just disapprobation. Its use to us sinful men is to save us and make us sit together in heavenly places to demonstrate to the ages the exceeding riches of God's kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And while the scriptures make clear that we are saved from ourselves and saved from our sin and saved from the evil one and saved from condemnation and saved for God's pleasure and saved for God's grace and saved for God's glory and saved for acts of service and saved forever, By God's grace, God's grace is not only about the so-called rescue of our souls through the atoning death of Jesus on a cross, though it is that, and ultimately that. No greater love has anyone than this than that he laid down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for his friends and his enemies. God's grace is also for daily living. God's grace is also for the ongoing transformation of his people. What Peter calls in his first letter, God's grace in its various or multitude of forms. We live in a world that is suffused with God's grace if we are able to see it. God is acting out there and in here to bless 
and to heal and to draw attention to his goodness. In these strange, strange, strange ways, I've become more perceptive just by God's grace of these truths and these realities recently. I checked out a book at the library a week ago. Had one of my kids in there, checked out a book, and sort of went, when do I pay for this? You don't pay for it. It's grace. Took one of my kids to Baskin Robbins. And you know what the standard size of a scoop of ice cream is, and you always kind of wish it's bigger. <laughs> they got the sort of the, the scooper, and it's, it's about that big. And this young guy, probably not knowing what he's doing, just makes that scoop of ice cream for my youngest huge. And God's saying, there's so much grace in my world for you. It's just all around you and just forms that you're not even recognizing in the library and in Baskin Robbins and in countless other ways. As Dallas Willard has observed, the kingdom of God runs on grace. Like a 747 taking off burns fuel. At an incredible rate, so the kingdom of God runs on grace. Grace is God acting in our lives to accomplish what we cannot do on our own. It is possible for us as we are willing to partner with God's grace and to utilize the grace on which God's kingdom runs to bring about in us and around us what God wills. The presence of the spirit and of grace is not meant to set the law aside, get this, but to enable conformity to it from an inwardly transformed personality. Grace is not opposed to the law, but rather empowers us to do what Jesus said to do, to live as Jesus said to live, to see the world as Jesus saw it. It is God's grace and embracing God's grace and partnering with God's grace in our lives that allows us and empowers us to follow Jesus more fully, which is critically important that we understand as we embark on a renewed intention to become increasingly fully devoted followers of Jesus. This is not about works. This is not about being good. It's not about following the law. It's about getting on board with God's grace and allowing him to do in us what we cannot do on his own by his divine help and power to become the kind of people and community and through us world that he desires to see and desires us to be. It is God's active grace that allows us and propels us to these sorts of experiences that on our own we have not heretofore been able to do which reminds me of a story. In Brooklyn, New York, there's a Jewish school known as Chush that caters to learning disabled children. Some children remain in Chush for their entire educational careers while others can sometimes be mainstreamed into conventional schools and classes. At a Chush fundraising dinner, the father of a Chush child delivered a speech that would never be forgotten by all who attended. After extolling the school and its dedicated staff, he cried out, but where is the perfection in my son Shia? Everything God has done, everything God is done with perfection. But my child cannot understand things as other children do. My child cannot remember facts and figures as other children do. Where is God's perfection in my child's life? 
The audience was shocked by the bluntness of his question, by the pain of the father's anguish. And they were stilled, paralyzed by the piercingness of his query. I believe the father answered that when God brings a child like this into the world, the perfection that he seeks is in the way that people react and respond to such a child. And then he told the following story about his son, Shia. One afternoon, Shia and his father walked past a park where some boys whom Shia knew were playing baseball. Shia asked his father, do you think they'll let me play? Shia's father knew that his son was not at all athletically inclined and that most boys would not want him on their team. But Shia's father understood that if his son was welcome to play, it would give him a needed sense of belonging. So Shia's father approached one of the boys in the field and asked if Shia could play. The boy looked around for guidance to his teammates, not getting any, however. He took matters into his own hands and said, we're losing by six runs. The game's in the eighth inning. I guess he can be on our team and we'll try to put him up to bat in the ninth inning. It doesn't really matter. Shia's father was ecstatic as Shia smiled broadly. Shia was told to put on a glove, go out to play short center field. They kind of created another position for him where the ball likely wouldn't be hit. In the bottom of the eighth inning, Shia's team scored a few runs but was still behind by three. In the bottom of the ninth inning, Shia's team scored again. And now with two outs and the bases loaded with a potential winning run on base, Shia was scheduled to be up to bat. Would the team actually let Shia bat at this juncture and give away the chance to win the game? Surprisingly, Shia was handed the bat. Everyone knew that it was impossible because Shia clearly didn't even know how to hold the bat properly, let alone hit with it. However, as Shia stepped to the plate, the pitcher moved forward a few steps and lobbed a gentle one over the plate so that Shia could hopefully make contact. The first pitch came in and Shia swung clumsily. He missed. One of Shia's now teammates came up to Shia and together they held the bat. and waited for the next pitch. The pitcher again took a few steps forward and tossed the ball softly towards Shia as the pitch came in and Shia and his teammates swung at the bat and together they hit a slow grounder back to the pitcher. The pitcher picked up the ball and could easily have thrown him out at first base, no problem, easy. Shia would have been out, that would have been the end of the game, over, done, go home. Instead, the pitcher took the ball and threw it on a high arc to right field, far beyond the reach of the first baseman. Everyone started yelling, Shia, run to first, run to first. Never in his life had Shia run to first. He scampered down the baseline, wide-eyed and startled. By the time he reached first base, the right fielder now has the ball. He could have thrown the ball to second base, uh, and the second baseman who would have easily tagged out Shia, who was now on his way to second base. But the right fielder understood what the pitcher's intentions were, so he threw the ball way over the second baseman to the third baseman. And everyone yelled, run to second, Shia, run to second, Shia. And Shia ran towards second as the base runners ahead of him deliriously circled the bases toward home. 
And as Shire reached second base, the opposing shortstop ran to him, turned him in the direction of third base and shouted, run to third, Shire, run to third. And as Shire rounded third, the boys from both teams ran behind him, screaming, run home, Shire, run home. And Shire ran home, stepping on home plate. And the boys from both teams together lifted him up and cheered and declared him the hero. He had just hit a grand slam and won the game. That day, said the the father softly, those 18 boys reached their level of God's perfection. And God's grace was manifest in palpable, tangible ways. On a park field, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And now hear these words, the very last words in the Bible, the very last sentence in the book of Revelation. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. May the grace of the Lord God be with his people. Amen.